Hello, I'm Conor McReynolds and welcome to another episode of The Dinner Party. In each episode of this podcast, I speak to a brilliant guest to learn all about the people who have inspired them most. They get to choose five people to invite to their dream dinner party and we learn more about who those people are and how they've influenced the dinner party host. This week, I am so excited to be joined by a comedian who I really love gigging with, Jake Farrell. Jake recently contributed to Penguin Random House's Edinburgh Unlocked audiobook, a collection of sets from brilliant comedians who in other circumstances would have been performing at this year's Fringe. Jake's a fascinating guy whose content is as thoughtful as it is hilarious. I really can't wait to speak to him about his guest choices, which are just so good. So here he is. This is the dream dinner party of Jake Farrell. Jake Farrell, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on the dinner party. Oh, thanks for having me, mate. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to speak to you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just at my desk, just done another day of lockdown working from home. So, yeah. Yeah. How are uh, you getting on with that? You work in charity, for a charity, don't you? Yeah, I work for a charity, an education charity that helps people, young people go to uni. So it's been a bit of a weird three weeks. Oh, with God, the yeah, mad busy time for you. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's been all right. I mean, I've kind of, I guess, relatively lucky given everything. Obviously, um, I did have about two weeks where I wondered if the charity that I work for would be there at the end of the week. Um, oh, but, wow. but after that, it was, it's been all right. Yeah, I mean to say as, as lucky as you can be given all the all the madness um, yeah yeah, yeah. As, and kind of outside of you the work you're doing for charity uh have you been kind of embracing sort of new world comedy like online gigs driving gigs outdoor all that stuff well i haven't i didn't do any online gigs um i i did my first gig back on saturday um, oh why and that was fun. Um, it was just about 20 people there. It was all kind of social distance and stuff. That was cool. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, again, I think kind of fortunate in as much as it's like as I kind of had a bit of a hack line in the end. That it's like the only time in my life where I've been glad not to be a professional stand up comedian. Do you know what I mean? Like it's um, yes. yeah, when yeah, it yeah. all went when it all went south. It was like, Christ, I, I would have. This is, that's what exactly what I wanted to be doing. So it was like I was kind of in the fortunate position where I didn't really have to do the online stuff for like mm-hmm. money and food so it's like I just yeah, yeah, really, yeah. I didn't really go near it I wouldn't mind doing one of the driving ones they look a bit they look a bit weird um, yeah they're, they're quite one? fun yeah well J- Jericho Comedy have oh, done course, yeah. I've been organizing a few so I got to perform uh, a few drive-ins kind of early on um, and I, I find them really fun like basically what I kind of thought was I need to make a decision at the beginning because I'm not going to hear very much laughter yeah, I have to decide whether I'm going to tell myself it's going terribly and people aren't enjoying it. <laughs> Just plow on, or tell myself that I'm having the best gig of my life and everybody's That's basically in the car the cracking yeah, up. Bring to every gig anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there was no shift for me not hearing laughter. Yeah. yeah, I don't hear much laughter, but I decide I'm just going to plow on anyway for my own enjoyment. Um, so yeah, maybe yeah, they sound like they're for me. You can convince yourself, your, uh, convince yourself your uh Simon Amstel for the evening or one of those, yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, Jake, you're being very, very modest. You are uh I was so excited to to book you in for this chat because I love gigging with you. Uh I've I've been lucky enough through Jericho Comedy to gig with you a few times. And I just think you're you're such an interesting performer. If anybody's listening to the podcast and hasn't had the pleasure of seeing you live, 
uh, we actually have a little clip of you recorded live at Jericho Comedy. So, Jake, do do you want to have the the experience of introducing yourself? Uh, yeah, go on then. What, how, how do you want me to do it? Just uh, let's, uh, a big as if you're calling yourself on stage at Jericho Comedy. <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> please welcome to the stage uh, the man, a 29 year old man with the hairline of a 39 year old man um, <laughs> who is uh, probably knowing my experience at Jericho about to be very, uh, very unkind, but in a funny way to a group of scared middle class people. <laughs> That's fantastic. Here he is. No, it's, it's cool. I love, I love Oxford. I love my hometown, though, as well. I'm from a town called Stevenage. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, what context you heard about Stevenage in, mate? Uh, I lived there shortly and I left pretty quick. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me, everyone. Take care. <laughs> that was weird as well, because I was like, is anyone living in Stevenage? This guy was like, bang, me! I know we're all having a lovely time, but I've got something negative to say. <laughs> Let's fucking go! What's your name again? Brendan. Brendan. Oh, we were glad when you left, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. We had the big party, I remember now, while we had that big party. Thank fuck Brendan's name. <laughs> that was the song. That was it. No, no, why did you leave? Well, it was sort of temporary. I only lived there. My aunt lived there, so... Okay, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love Stevenage, right? Long story short, I love Stevenage. I'm very proud of coming from Stevenage. We're the world's first new town, right? Not everyone is as complimentary, as you found out. <laughs> um, other people, less complimentary, though, there's this one writer that's constantly slagging us off in his work. You might have heard of him. Called Charles Dickens, right? <laughs> now, Charles Dickens once said of Stevenage, nothing happens there except nothingness itself. <laughs> Prick, okay? <laughs> that is a bit rich as well, coming from a bloke that wrote a book called Mr. Humphrey's Clock. <laughs> Quite a bit of nothingness in that as well as it goes. <laughs> Just like Chaz has had a go at someone when he's got no right to there, right? We've all, we've all done that, I've been there. When I was the sports editor of my university paper, I tweeted at the football correspondent of the BBC because he tweeted his own name, right? So I tweeted at him saying, Phil McNulty, you get paid 70 grand a year to write about football and you just tweeted your own name, you're an idiot. And quick as a flash, he tweeted me back and went, that means a lot coming from you, Jake. Sick burn from Phil there. <laughs> But like, that's what we do. Everyone's had a go at someone when you've got no right to, right? And Dicko's had a go at us when he's got no right to. Because I looked him up on Encarta, and <laughs> it turns out that he wrote a lot of his novels whilst living in Broadstairs in Kent. Now, I went there for my auntie's 50th birthday, had some lovely fresh whelks, but it's not exactly Vegas, is it? <laughs> Having to go somewhere else for being boring when you live in Broadstairs is like Philip Piers Morgan calling someone a smug cunt, all right? That's not, that's not ideal. <laughs> Moral of the story being, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house in fucking Broadstairs, all right? <laughs> it's called Bleak House for a reason, mate. <laughs> it's, hard, like, it's, hard, it's hard enough when people that are not from the town are having a go at Stevenage, but we've got a bit of a problem as well, because people from Stevenage tend to portray Stevenage in quite a negative 
light as well, which isn't ideal. Um, <laughs> but Brendan is just one in a long line of people. That fantastic, Jake. So, uh, we've all heard a little clip of you there. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. For those who haven't seen you, like, what would you kind of say to people that your comedy is like about? What would kind of be your elevator pitch for your persona and the the topics that you're drawn to talking about? Yeah, that's I, I always find that one really hard to answer. I guess I mean, I think ultimately there's probably if I was being really kind of wanky about it, I think there's something about uh, the persona of it is someone who is both is simultaneously both kind of a smart Alec who thinks he knows better than everyone else whilst also being relatively vulnerable and self-deprecating. I know that sounds a bit like a kind of impossible like dichotomy, but like that's, uh, that's kind of, I guess where it's at is that it's it's like someone who, who's got, which kind of mirrors roughly my actual real persona, I guess is someone with just enough confidence to do it at all, but Mm -hmm. then not, enough to like be a fully kind of balls out leather jacket American kind of <laughs> someone hopefully with a bit more with a bit more kind of self-awareness and self-deprecation than yeah. one of those idiots I guess it, it's it's a really fine balance when you describe it like that but I, th- I think you really you, you manage it so well and you also manage to do it with such a degree of warmth like to what extent would you say your your comic persona you kind of touched on it there that it is quite close to your personality mm. are do you think you're quite authentically yourself on stage oh bloody hell Carl. that's a wonderful question <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's i mean this is again maybe descending slightly into wankiness but there's there's someone told me there's a quote i think it's miles davis said like it takes a long time to sound like yourself or something mm. like oh, mm-hmm. uh, along those lines and I think that was kind of what it was like for me in a way because I was so as everyone is so heavily influenced at the beginning that it was almost like a parody where I was somewhere yeah, between yeah. Kind of Russell Brand and Liam Williams if, if that if that's even possible um, <laughs> and I wasn't really like either of them to be honest so I, I kind of did a lot of this kind of dour moody stuff that that was kind of aping Liam Williams it wasn't really reflective of who I am so I think as it's gone along I have managed to tread that line like you say of being a bit more it feels more natural to, yeah. to me the work the stuff that I do now and it helps with the writing I guess because when it's coming from a consistent and like authentic place then it just kind of comes out of you a bit you don't have to pretend to be someone you're not I guess yeah uh, yeah 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 so yeah I think I think over the years I've gradually got towards something approximating myself <laughs> which is <laughs> Do you think in in a way as well, like, as you say, when you're writing stuff, do you think it's like a good way to sort of get to know yourself a bit better in a weird way? That might sound even wankier than anything else. But do you think when you're kind of writing, it's a good way of kind of clarifying your own thoughts and perspectives on things? Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually, because I think you I think I've probably first started out writing things from the point of view that I thought was like acceptable or cool or or mm. or, or whatever and I think I'm less like that now um and yeah like I started started doing this thing or I started I started doing this bit very shortly before lockdown and obviously I've done it once since that was about like living through history and how 
mm. the pandemic you're kind of living through history but but it would have been i would have preferred to live through world war Two because there was this kind of moral <laughs> mind where you just knew what you where you were at it was just you were for the nazis or against them and like and then and i think like that's that kind of is a bit more of an old-fashioned or traditional point of view right there's a kind of lot of moral relativism that is applied to situations now and and oh well people were doing the best they can but actually i think mm. i am to some extent like an old-fashioned 40 year old in a pub just going look the nazis were wrong i would have fought against them that's it there's no you know what i mean there's some, some things yeah. there's good people and there's bad people and uh <laughs> so, i think yeah, it's I, it's worryingly relevant still though maybe, i think you yeah. can still be for and against nazis yeah true true <laughs> but i guess that that's a long a long way of saying i think yes i've realized that that in in writing that bit i've gone oh like oh that is what i think about those things that clarifies where i am on some of those yeah. my desire i guess to uh to kind of like smooth the edges of a completely increasingly complex and like ragged world yeah. some kind of understandable binary which is the, probably the work of a simpleton in some way <laughs> um, but uh yeah it's definitely where i'm at i think yeah you i mean it's it's very interesting you i mean you say things like moral relativism um and and it's a big that's a big area to explore and you do talk about kind of philosophy and class and literature and like you you do deal with some quite big things on stage uh in in ways that feel really accessible as well um and i think that's one of the great successes of of your writing and performing um yeah but, i think that, that was something sorry i cut you off there no 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 please go ahead i, I was going to say that like uh, what what the process of me i think becoming a even partially watchable comedian has been a process of like I used to start with the big issue and try and make it funny, if you know what I mean. Like mm -hmm. I, I was obsessed with comedy that said something or that had some kind of purpose or was like serious in a way, which is, I think, a bit, yeah, is, is somewhere, not something I think of as much now. Um, and, and I think to go back, like it's a very lame or, or kind of um, embarrassing thing to say, but I, I was pretty much obsessed with, I thought Liam Williams was like some, it was a comedy that I'd never really seen before. And he talked about uh, climate change, environmentalism and, and political action and whatever. And, and, mm -hmm. and, but he, he had funny things to say that so happened to be about those things. He didn't write political action on a whiteboard and then start writing. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, and I, yeah. the first couple of years I came at it from that perspective of going, what have I got to say that's funny about, about, uh, about like climate change or whatever and the answer is nothing because no one's got anything funny to say about climate change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then but then in the, like more recently where i think i've become again better and i'm more proud of my stuff is i'll go like i'll tell a story about my granddad or something and then in the mm -hmm. process of doing that i'll go oh there's that's kind of about identity or class and then i'll maybe lean into it a bit but the the, the inciting incident wasn't me trying to be some kind of pseudo intellectual it was just me trying to be funny which is like yeah know, obvious but is is key for i can't stress that enough that's the kind <laughs> of thing. absolutely yeah you um I, we had a really interesting conversation on on the other podcast that we do the jacko comedy podcast chatted to jacob hawley a few weeks ago and he was talking about something very similar where he was watching comedians who he said he was fascinated by the fact that 
they weren't kind of making an interesting point and then saying something funny or saying something funny and tagging an interesting point onto it. That the interesting point was also the funny thing and that they were able to make those two sort of separate things one thing and that was the achievement of the writing. And I think that's something uh, that I kind of recognize in, in your writing as well. Is that It sounds like that's something that you've kind of discovered, like you say, through telling your stories and that kind of thing, that those two yeah, things can sure. become one. For sure, yeah. And <clears throat> I think that is that is a good way of articulating it, basically, is that just coming at it from a different angle. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think that that is kind of uh, when you come at things from a different angle that en- enables you to do that, um, basically. And, yeah. and I think it's just kind of getting over those growing pains of when you first start. You basically are trying to emulate emulate people who are far more skillful than you, and that's quite a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Really? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah, but no, I yeah. think as as I've gone on, I've definitely got better at that, and I've I've been I've more enjoyed my own stuff and more enjoyed performing actually. Uh, as, I, as, I've, as I've gone on that's cool that's really cool something I mean I mentioned Jacob there and uh, I think there's a, a kind of common area of interest in in you and Jacob's comedy that you you both talk about class mm. in a really interesting way um, you have a great line where you say that you're working class for a comedian <laughs> yeah that's a great line can, can you kind of uh, explain that line or or kind of dig into that a little bit more because I thought it's such a striking line it's such an interesting thing to say yeah well I I think sadly in some ways and I think this is why Jacob and I have this uh kind of uh interest in common I guess to a certain extent is that in order to stand out or to to kind of at least make some headway in a very crowded marketplace you have to have an angle effectively which I think is a bit Mm -hmm. of a shame but is kind of is kind of understandable from the kind of commercial interests Mm -hmm. that that effectively shape and run the industry um it it makes sense to have yourself in a kind of in 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 this like ready and available shape which is like I'm a kind of working class person who's happened to stumble into this non who's kind of other in this like non-working class world and I think that line came from basically uh, a, sh- a kind of a sense of shame effectively in that I am not by the strictest definition of the word now working class in that I'm a university graduate who works in a kind of professional managerial class kind of job um, effectively doing spreadsheets like everyone else and um, and I, I think culturally I'm working class in that my dad is a postman and my mum works at a high street bank and and they, they they never went to university but I think it's about effectively the alienation that you kind of feel feel as a as a social uh, someone who's experienced the the upside of social mobility I guess in that I don't really feel truly at home in the world of my kind of university friends many of whom are kind of third generation university graduates um, and their parents have much more access to kind of capital and property and also don't feel truly at home in a world of my kind of peers from school, many of whom uh, went to university, many of whom went and dropped out, many of whom didn't go at all. So I think it was, uh, it's effectively, I think, a self-deprecating joke where in the cosseted uh, kind of world of, of comedy, I qualify as working class by virtue of the fact that my dad does a normal job. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but by by in any other world, I would just I would actually probably be a soft-handed ponce, which I is more in line <laughs> with what I am, I guess. Um, 
so so yeah i guess that that is trying to communicate those two things and um at the same time is that is that i don't like to renounce that and that's something my friends and i kind of talk about i've got one mate who's kind of like well we're kind of middle class now and it's like well i think that a lot of the benefits of being middle class are kind of carry on throughout your life and we've never had those and we don't retain those do you know what i mean culturally yeah, yeah. or whatever um but we're not truly working class either in that i don't get up and do a manual job five days a week uh, or six days a week like my like my dad does so um yeah it's i guess a that's really a really interesting area to explore yeah really yeah. really interesting um, i mean and, and as you say it, it is uh to an ex- you know, I, I see what you mean when you say it's kind of slightly regrettable that you've got to, for want of a better word, kind of market yourself as like I'm working class interests in literature and philosophy and yeah. maybe two things that culturally people don't necessarily always put together because of preconceptions and that kind of thing. Do you think there is enough uh, going on in comedy to kind of because there's been so much happening to redress the kind of gross imbalance in terms of uh, representation when it comes to gender and race. Yeah. But do you think there are enough kind of working class comedic voices being amplified? Um, for the purposes of my own career, no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think I think more could be done, um, and and I think that. I mean, it's maybe not a completely popular opinion, but I, I do believe that um, uh, sometimes when when you have when you when we rightfully make those adjustments in order uh, to kind of increase diversity on on the lines of whether it's sexuality or 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 gender or or race or whatever, I think ultimately if you then uh, if if the people that that you make space for then are still from the same economic class as mm-hmm. all of the other white men then ultimately do you get much divergence of opinion or, or experience and mm-hmm. you definitely do then still on the basis of, of race and gender but there's there's other areas where where maybe you could be made more space for I mean <laughs> not to sit here literally as like a 20 year old 29 year old <laughs> white bloke kind of moaning and I, I and I and I'm not because I think that um uh, I, I think that uh the basically I do have a I do have a, a kind of advantage in those respects, but I think it is an area where where it could improve. I like look at a lot of the output, especially um, in kind of sitcoms and stuff, and they effectively fetishize working class people or or kind of working class experience in a way that shows like limited or no understanding of it, and working class people are kind of portrayed uh, often in a in a way that I don't recognize from my upbringing, both as kind of like feckless or or disloyal or mm-hmm. or kind of self-interested and that's kind of played for laughs um mm-hmm. and that's not something i recognize so i think it's, it's more about that kind of that diversity of of of, of representation and experience and the way that those experiences are portrayed rather than the people that get to sit on panel shows if you know what i mean yeah yeah definitely that um that makes total sense I, i'm kind of moving slightly away from this because, uh, because there's so many things I want to talk to you about before we even come to the actual main course of the podcast, which is, of course, your dream dinner party. But I can't not talk to you about something very cool that you did over lockdown, which was contributing to Penguin Random House's Edinburgh Unlocked audiobook, which was your part of that was so fantastic. I really, really love listening to it. 
it's a very cool project to be a part of. How did it come about? Um, well, I guess there's, there's probably quite a simple, underwhelming answer in that I, I was um, in that I was uh, I'd been approached. Well, I, I'd, I wanted to get basically a producer to do my Edinburgh show that would have mm-hmm. been the Edinburgh just gone. And I really liked this producer called Burke's Nest, who'd made loads of shows that I liked and thought were cool. So I asked them to come and watch one of my shows. They came and they said they really liked it and they wanted to produce my show. Um which and then the, the show is going to be on in the Pleasant's Courtyard about eight o'clock, I think, or maybe nine o'clock. I can't remember oh, now. Man. And uh, so I was all like kind of hyped up for doing that and a bit excited. Um, and then it didn't happen. But then the uh, Penguin approached Burke's Nest and said, who do you think might be good to do? this project um and they were they were also i guess i was lucky in that they were looking for a mixture of experienced acts who would actually have some clout to sell the book and Mm -hmm. debutantes that people had never heard of and probably were cheaper (laughs) so so i got in on the debutant card um, (laughs) and uh, i said i will take whatever amount of money you've written on that piece of paper it doesn't matter just let me be in the audio (laughs) book please um yeah so that was how i got involved and then berksness was really helpful in helping me kind of hone it down and get it ready and it was a mixture of kind of new stuff and then stand up that i'd done already Uh, but i was like I Man. loved the piece so, so much. And as oh, you said, me. some of the pieces in it were adapted from bits of stand-up and there were bits that I recognised that I love. But also, you'd adapted them so perfectly for the format. I mean, what was that challenge like of delivering, you know, what is essentially a kind of a stand-up idea to to an audience that you can't see or hear? Yeah, that's. I mean, that was the that was something I did think a lot about actually, and I know that other people went with quite high concept stuff and went with quite um, like really kind of uh, meta ideas, or, or and, and some of them were were amazing. Um, mm-hmm. What I really wanted to get across basically is that I, I think I'm more of a writer than I am a performer in some ways, in or I'm better at writing, and that's the thing. I enjoy the most and I, I wanted to effectively make it like a short story that was funny. That was what I kept saying to people and mm-hmm. they kept nodding at me and, and smiling as though it made <laughs> sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, God, I'm probably going to get some kind of sectioned for stalking or something, but I, <laughs> Liam Williams, Liam Williams's ladhood was from Radio 4 was like a big thing. Whereas I, I kind of want it to sound like that, but not like that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. Uh, and so, so yeah, it was it was really important to me that it sounded effectively like a piece of prose, or like was it, uh, and was more wordy and gave me more space to kind of write into the ideas. Where a lot of the, I guess, the humour is probably communicated through body language or, or acting out on stage. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, it was something that we did think long and hard about, and I, I'm, I'm I was pleased with how it came out. Really, in that it felt like a good kind of representation of what my act is kind of like without obviously being like yeah. stand up I don't really think you can kind of migrate stand up to that to that format really yeah no definitely I, th- I think uh knowing your stand up as I do and having heard the book and, and re-listened to the bit today I can confirm that everything you set out to do you achieved just spectacularly I really really loved it and if anybody's listening to this and hasn't checked out the Edinburgh Unlocked audiobook yet it's so damn good. You can even, if you've not signed up to Audible, you can get it for free. I don't get a commission for saying that. 
I just think it's a brilliant thing that you should listen to. And, and uh, neither do I. There's no royalties involved. So d- to be honest, just contact me directly and I'll send you the link if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in this thing that you said uh, just then, that you see yourself as more of a writer than a performer and that writing is the thing you love. And I'm slightly obsessed. Listeners who kind of have listened to every episode of this will probably be rolling their eyes and anticipating the question. <laughs> They'll be sick of hearing it now. But I am obsessed with talking to creative people about other creative endeavors that they kind of aspire to take on or like people's, for want of a better term, like creative bucket lists. Yeah. And you talk about being a writer and how you see yourself. Do you have ambitions to like write a sitcom, write sketches, write a novel? Is there is there something else that you're kind of yearning to try that you haven't got round to doing yet? Well, I think I would like to write something on the length and kind of scope of a novel one day. I think ultimately, if I could imagine a life where I would be happy, that would that would be more in line with it than like going around the country and the associated like stomach churning anxiety of performing every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I think that kind of fits with it more and 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 the bit I really enjoy I think is the writing aspect of it and I, I do the odd bit of journalism here and there and mm-hmm. um, I've got a mate who's in a in about a, as big a hardcore punk band as you can be at, which is not massive <laughs> but like for them they're, they're, they're an amazing an amazing band from my hometown and I I write all the album liner notes for them and stuff like that and and, and oh, I've cool. kind of got a few few bits and pieces on the go but so yeah, I think I think I'll, that would be ideal, really. It, it, like I love stand up and I love I love um, I, I love performing, but like I don't really I don't really love the kind of adversarial Saturday night. I've got to win you round with 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 like three jokes <laughs> in twenty seconds. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very much a luxury player in that respect. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not the first name on the team sheet for that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And that's why it's kind of such a shame about Edinburgh, really. Like I know that the Pleasance and whatever gets a lot of stick and and, and um, in some quarters as being kind of an exclusive kind of club or, or, or whatever. But but all I've ever really wanted to do is is do a show about ideas and have people, and not many either, 30, 40 people turn up every night and watch it and me just mm-hmm. be there with a mic and, and do it. That's that's my version of what I'd really like to do stand up wise, to be honest. So I was a bit, I was a bit gutted about it all and it kind of don't really know what's coming next in terms of what I will do in stand up. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of ideas that you had for this year. Hopefully uh, would, would you say they're transferable for kind of doing a show next year or. I don't know how transferable anything is. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It, it, It truly does feel like a, why does anyone want to hear about my granddad after all this? It's like, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if they like, yeah, I think some of them are. I think the show was a lot about, was a lot about class and was a lot about, um, about kind of, it might be applicable in as much as a lot of it was about what do you do when you kind of life intrudes on you following a, a, a kind of a luxurious dream I guess which which comedy is to it to a certain extent mm-hmm. so I, that, a lot of that might hold over and it might even be more applicable in a time where kind of the straightened times that are that are already on us and are about to come um yeah yeah so yeah hopefully a lot of it might hang around but it's it's just like it it, it was meant to be a bit of a, a an inflection point of like 
maybe is the beginning of generating my own audience and all I've ever really wanted to, I don't want to be on Live at the Apollo. Do you know what I mean? I just want to do part-time work and part-time going around to art centres to have a load of other soft-handed <laughs> yeah. ponces listen to me <laughs> talk about class. That's all I want. <laughs> that is the most honest dream I've ever heard anyone express. <laughs> I admire that. I don't want to go to, to be told I'm a, a ginger wanker in like run corn on a Friday, <laughs> do you know what I mean, for a hundred pounds. I'm not I'm no good at that. I need to be on my own turf with a load of other jaded hipsters. That's what I need. And um and so yeah, ho- hopefully oh. there'll be some market for that when this is all over. <laughs> I fully believe in that idea for you. I want <laughs> more for you. <laughs> but okay. I think no, I I think that sounds absolutely perfect and I totally uh totally relate to it in a big way jake i've gotta i've I've gotta ask you now about your dream dinner party it's why you've graciously given up your time to talk to me uh you've put together sometimes when i'm chatting to people on this podcast i see their guest list and the question answers itself like what's the tone of the party going to be it's going to so obviously be this or that based on the people who are going and for yours, I genuinely can't pin it down. So I'm really interested to know, given the party that you've envisaged that we're going to talk about, what do you think the tone of this evening is going to be? It's a good question. It's one I've thought about uh, quite a bit. It could go it could go in a number of different directions, not all of them pleasant. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think... So every year, my mate Andy has us all round for Christmas dinner, and it's quite funny because we all put on shirts and like he cooks a lovely dinner, and we talk about how much we all love each other. And then about four hours later, we put on very loud Trinidadian soca music and dance around his kitchen while drinking apple sours. Um, and so there's like a kind of two things going on at once there. And that's my, that's my ideal dinner party. One that basically starts out as quite nice and festive and then descends into something approaching uh, hell. <laughs> um, so I guess that's the tone that I would ultimately like to engender. I think there's a couple of characters in this list that Certainly. could be quite hard work, but um, you never know. If they're on form, could be quality. If not, could all be going home at half nine. <laughs> it's it's a high stakes scenario you've painted there. If you <laughs> yeah. get them and the stars align, exactly, this could, could be. One be... For the ages. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about where this dinner party would be happening then. If you could choose anywhere in the world to gather this extraordinary group of people together, where would you want this to happen? What th- what do you think gives you the best chance of the, the party being a success? I think what you'd want is <clears throat> some kind of solitude, I think. So you'd mm-hmm. probably want some nice Airbnb in like the Cotswolds or the country somewhere or like the Scottish Highlands. I'm not too particular oh, on yeah. where, just as long as it's kind of solitude because you've got some big personalities and yes. I think you'd want a lot of space to spread out ideally a kitchen island because that's always set sets the mood off quite nicely I think. <laughs> yeah. um, something along those lines I think like I, I couldn't be around my flat do you know what I mean I think when, when when you've when you've you see the kind of people that I've got coming you want everyone to have their own nice bedroom ideally with an ensuite <laughs> at the end of the night so um, kind of like one of the places I don't do you watch Mortimer and White House Gun Fishing because 
they that TV show they they go fishing. I, I'm they, familiar with that. I haven't watched it yet, but I know the kind of thing you mean. They just stay in these lovely kind of yeah, like uh, isolated Airbnbs or holiday cottages, or whatever. That's the yeah. kind of vibe that I'm looking for. I think. I think that works very nicely. I like the thought of you being somewhere so remote with these people. The kind of you're cut off from everyone and everywhere else. Yeah, and it's just you and these personalities. Exactly, and, and I think it would no distractions. aid my management of the evening because I think some of them I'd be like, "Look, we're not going anywhere. Let's all muck in here. Let do you do a bit of the washing up or something. We're all we're all in this together." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're near a, if you're near a tube station or a cab, like I say, you could be knocking down to two people at nine o'clock and then looking at putting on a DVD or something, and that's when you know you've had a shit one. So um, <laughs> it's the last thing I want. All right, well, let's assume then that you find this perfect isolated cottage and your first guest is about to arrive. Your first guest is one of the most celebrated British writers of the 20th century, the the absolute master of the spy, thriller, espionage genre. You're inviting John le Carre. Yeah. When did you first become a le Carre fan? Yeah, my granddad Roy was into Le Carre and he lent me a couple and I didn't really read them or I had it in my head that he was really lowbrow because I was so aware of his name, if you know what I mean. Like I, okay, I, I kind of yeah. in a tear with like with those kind of people. And then I got into him um probably about three or four years ago in a big, big way, and haven't really read much of anyone else since. Because <laughs> there's quite, oh, wow. a lot, quite a lot of I've, he's got quite a lot of books and I could yeah. I could talk about him forever to be honest so you might have to stop me but I mean <laughs> I think the what I love about him is that like you say he is one of the most celebrated authors of uh of his generation of of the last however many years but in a way I think he's probably underrated because of the he works he writes a genre fiction basically and I think there's a kind mm-hmm. of snobbishness that looks down on that and it is one of those things that I think really good books do where you like read it and this is uh, like the his probably his most famous novel was spy that came in from the cold or maybe tinker taylor soldier spy but there mm-hmm. are lessons or insights in those books that were written like 30 years ago um that still stand today i think and that's kind of the work of a true true genius well I that's think. interesting is it the the observations like the because some of them are kind of uh satires at the time or kind of condemnations at the time that he's living in um, do you think it's those particular viewpoints that are still relevant or is it just the quality of the storytelling that makes them kind of timeless? Well, I think, I mean, he's so knowledgeable about the world that he's writing in because he was a spy for a bit. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of been overplayed from what I've read of his, like his autobiography and what he's written about his life, uh, mm-hmm. how, how, how deep in the spy world he was. But I think, so all of those things still stand and even the novels that he's released in the last four or five years are kind of spot on in terms of geopolitics or or, or Mm -hmm. in terms of the the relationship between the individual and the state. But more than that, I think the things that really are kind of eternal are the ways in which he describes men and their desperation and them getting old and them getting things wrong and them not being able to form lasting relationships and, um, and yeah, I mean, like George Smiley is one of the most famous characters in English literature, but is like is genuinely, I think, instructive to to kind of men and women of all ages and whatever really backgrounds. And um, 
I think, yeah, that's pretty, pretty remarkable, to be honest, to be able to do that and to be able to write like a proper story, like a ripping story at the same time. Yeah, yeah. That's like the radio head of books, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like uh, what you're saying about his writing, it's is really profound. Like you're saying that it kind of gets to like some, the the kind of depth of, of on some level kind of humanity and, I mean, that I word desperation so. carries some baggage there. Like, it's quite intense. I think it is, yeah. And I mean, these that's, I think he's kind of well known in a way, or the cliche about him is he kind of subverts the standard of the spy novel mm. in, in, in as much as his characters live these quite dreary, mm-hmm. bureaucratic lives. And I mean, Smiley himself is, uh, and this is why the Gary Oldman version of him is not very good, because Smiley is kind of, not very sexually alluring and is and is a bit portly and is old and can't run let alone shoot a gun but just does everything mm-hmm. kind of through his his kind of uh, his understanding of of the world that they live in uh, and that's how he kind of achieves success and um and so yeah i think there's a lot to so like in that in, in this kind of very frank portrayal of men in their middle age battling against time and the kind of changing world around them, there is, I think, a real sadness in that. And that's, for me, the overriding thing I love about the books and also the thing that the books are really about. I don't really think the books are really about the intricacies of each plot. The The books are, mm-hmm. about, are about people trying and failing and kind of trying again while the world slowly revolves around them. Um, and that's, yeah, and I, I mean, what more do you want oh. than that, Connor? <laughs> That's an extraordinary kind of summary of them, and I think it's uh, it's really profound. I mean, what would you hope to get out of a conversation with Lacari? What would you most want to ask him about or yeah. hear about? Well, that's a good question because I was lucky enough to go to. So one of the reasons I've invited him is because of all of that kind of pretentious toss that I've just said, but also <laughs> because um, I was lucky enough to go. He did a talk at the German Embassy last year because he's like a big. Uh, Germanophile, Germanophile, is that the right word? Anyway, and um, yeah, sure, <laughs> we'll take it. And uh, and he was great. He did like a a Q and A, and he's like eighty four, I think, but he's sharp as a tack, and um, he's a great kind of storyteller. And I, I don't know if I'm racially profiling you here, Connor, but in my family, which is some of <laughs> Irish descent, being a kind of great storyteller that people we enjoy love a good to, story. Yeah, yeah. high premium <laughs> is placed on that. And conversely, I fucking hate people who are shit at telling stories. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so Le Carre yeah. was was even in his age. He turned up in a like in a suit that that probably cost more than uh, than I earn in a year, and um, he just looked <laughs> the, the kind of yeah, he looked really refined and like a man who'd lived his life properly with values. And um, yeah. he told this story about. So Alec Guinness was famously played George Smiley in a couple of bits and pieces, but I think most famous uh-huh. in the TV series of Tinker Taylor, which was, I think, 1976 or something like that. Yeah. And um, they became friends, which is kind of cool in and of itself. And he said that Alec Guinness used to live outside of London and he lived in London and he'd ring him up and his, his real name's um, David and he'd say, uh, he'd ring him up and he'd answer and he'd go, hello. And Alec Guinness would go, hello, David. <laughs> and then John, John Le Carre would go, oh, hello, Alec, how are you? And he'd go, how did you know it was me? 
which I thought was <laughs> a lovely, <laughs> a lovely little <laughs> anecdote. Um, which, uh, yeah, probably let down by my poor imitation of Alec Guinness's. In, I in was just book. admiring your Alec Guinness. <laughs> I think it's an admirable one. So I'd be hoping to get more. I think he's probably got a hundred of those kind of stories. You know what I mean? I'd be hoping yeah. to winkle a few of those out of him after a few ports as the night wore on I think oh excellent I like that he's I mean he lived you mentioned that he was a spy um even his personal life was a very interesting one like his mother abandoned him at the age of five they were reunited when he was 21 his father was a known associate of the Cray twins and spent much of his life in prison uh and, and uh, he he feuded with Salman Rushdie over the satanic yeah. verses. Uh, Lakari was quoted as saying, "Nobody has a God-given right to insult a great religion and be published with impunity." So he's yeah. a man of strong opinions as well. Yeah, and and you're, you're very good at this kind of because I had a little note to talk about that. His dad as well. <laughs> he, he wrote a book called A Perfect Spy, which is like this semi-autobiographical thing which basically puts his life in as though he were a British diplomat and spy and tells the story of his dad and his dad was a complete wrong and 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 effectively Mm -hmm. a con man and um and he doesn't really and he's kind of has this English boarding school accent but because his dad was constantly moving him around boarding schools and just coming up with the money at the right time to keep him there and all of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff and it's just got this like kind of stranger than fiction life Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout it, and this is a kind of, I like people like this in general, he basically got really famous and really rich really quickly and was then like, fuck off, I'm going to do what I want for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, and I love that. And, and he's kind of, he has, he has effectively done that where he was kind of on the, on the other side of a lot of, um, on the other side of, of of a lot of the kind of literary authors on the Salman Rushdie thing, and is mm-hmm. and is basically um, basically says and does whatever the fuck he wants to the age of like he is eighty five uh, yeah. now, um, yeah, and he's just he, he's had a bit of a kind of Forrest Gumpy life, really touching all of these different. Uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> bits, bits of really famous. Like I think the first thing he said when um, he did this talk. There was two really funny things he said. One one was someone said quite an innocuous question, and he said, "Well, I once talked about that with Graham Greene, as though it was like the most natural <laughs> thing in the world," um, which I thought was a very kind of ballsy move. Um, and the other thing, which I thought was funny and maybe less endearing, but um, he said, uh, "Yes, so my two sons have set up this production company, and they've been doing rather well because." they did the night manager and that did rather well. And now they're doing a couple of others of mine. And I, and I want to kind of stand up and say, Oh, so uh, your sons <laughs> who've got unlimited access to the most exciting IP of the last 100 years, they're doing all right. Are they? Uh, David? <laughs> what a surprise. How did they manage that? Um, but yeah, legend nonetheless. And also he signed, he signed my book uh, for me and I did a very fanboyishly like went up to him and asked him to sign my yeah, book. Yeah. Yeah. Bless him, he's old and he had to sit down, but he did it. Um, and he was very nice and gracious. And yeah, so that's yeah, I, I, very, that's very out. cool. Uh, he is such a cracking choice for a first guest. What a way to kickstart your party. John Le Carre with his stories. Your next guest, your next guest's done a bit of spying himself, Jake, actually, <laughs> uh, albeit slightly different context. I think we could sit here and talk just for hours about your second guest. He's absolutely fascinating. 
you're inviting Leeds United head coach Marcelo Bielsa. Yeah. Why are you inviting the man known as El Loco to your dinner party? That's enough, isn't it? That's enough. That's it. (laughs) Next. Um, So, so, um, I'm a big, big football fan, and also I happen to be from a big family of of Leeds supporters. So I've been particularly okay. close to the story over the last couple of years. Yeah, um, yeah, I was aware just by being a football fan of Marcelo Bielsa um, before before he became the manager of Leeds um, and his kind of exacting standards or whatever. But over mm-hmm. the course of the last two years, basically fallen in love with him and uh, his kind of doomed pursuit of perfection. I guess there's a bit of a theme going here already. I've just realised. Um, I, yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating, fascinating man. He's from a family, he's from a very kind of establishment family in Argentina. I think his brother is like the, he's like the ambassador to another country, another South American country. His mm-hmm. dad was, uh, I think, a famous professor. I might be wrong about that. He himself, I think, is a qualified lawyer. Like he's just from this really amazing family, and he's mm-hmm. like almost kind of the kind of idiot black sheep of the family because he's one of the best football managers of all time. Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I like. Are you are you a big football fan, Connor? I can't remember. I am a football head. fan. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. Although I have to admit that I, I, again, I guess like what you'd said, aware of Bielsa as a football manager, aware that players who he manages are expected to give everything for him but until I kind of read about him today in in preparation for this I actually didn't really realize the extent to which he takes that to like so far beyond the logical extreme (laughs) Uh, he is I mean I read uh, he turned to someone after a game once and said have you ever thought about killing yourself after a loss (laughs) Like, and this demonstrates like an almost unbelievable intensity. He asked a young defender if he'd be willing to cut off one of his fingers if it meant (laughs) winning the game the next day. Uh, That young defender went on to score the first goal in a 4-3 win. Uh, So obviously that intensity kind of did a job on him. But he, Marcelo Bielsa... Reading about him has just blown my mind, Jake. Like I, I can't fathom what a fascinating man he is. Yeah, you and said think... that you didn't know much about him, and you've you've kind of discovered more about him. Give us a sense if if people are listening who don't know who Marcelo Bielsa is. Give us a sense of who he is, what he does, and why he is El Loco. Yeah, well, I, I think you, you've you've got some anecdotes there that do get to the core of him a little bit, and he is he is by any definition a lunatic. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but I think underneath it all as well, what I've been really struck by since he became the manager of Leeds is how invested in the community he is, like in a very in a very tangible way. He lives in a one bedroom flat, flat above a sweet shop in the village of Weatherby um where he earns millions of a year obviously um mm-hmm. much of which he gives from to charitable causes as i understand it um and there's a really famous picture i was actually at the game weirdly um the famous picture of him after leeds uh lost one nil away to qpr at the kind mm-hmm. of 
three-quarter point of last season. So not the season just gone, the season before that, when yeah. They, yeah, yeah. they famously kind of stumbled when they looked like they would be certain to be promoted after 15 years and then um, and then didn't make it. Uh, yeah. And he's in the tunnel and he's just like, after the game, they lost 1-0. QPR were playing really badly at the time. They should have won. And it was kind of the, the beginning of the end of the title bid, basically. And he's just like slumped on his own in the tunnel with his head in his hands. And... That to me is like he felt it as deeply as a lot of the fans fe- feel it, yeah, and yeah. truly understands the kind of link between a football club, which are increasingly talked about in kind of franchise terms or as pieces of property to kind of uh-huh. launder the reputations and money of of of, of very corrupt companies or, or corrupt nations. And he understands the true link between the community in a very romantic and probably doomed way, as I mentioned between yep. the community and the people that represent them in the football club. Yeah. And he lives those values. He, I, I think, again, maybe to go back right to the start, I, I'm attra- increasingly attracted to very resolute and rigid values, basically. I think that, that in, in a kind of increasingly complex and insane world, I'm attracted to people that say, this is how I'm going to live my life and here's what I'm going to do. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, not going to just... Yeah, I see that. ...window dressing. And he... he I think he has like a phrase where he says like, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters how you do it. And so right. part of the reason why some of his teams or the theorize that they've come up short in the past is that he demands they play in a very specific, very high octane way, which is not conducive to playing 50 games across the course of a season. So they always kind of run out of steam apart from this year when they pissed the league by 10 points. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that, and I, this I, is I known as that. the Bielsa burnout. Yes, and and as and the style of play is known as Bielsa ball, and it uh-huh. it makes all other styles of football look shit and boring, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and it's just remarkable. And, and so for him to say, no, this is what we do, and and we're going to stick to it, and we're always going to do it because that it represents our community and it makes them feel happy because it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not useful for them to come to the game and for us to win at the weekend when they spend loads of money, it's useful for them to come to the game and enjoy it and see that we give everything like they are one and the same. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's a silly, romantic, beautiful idea. <laughs> but I'm, it is, um, but on the flip side of it, um, maybe not on the flip side of it, but it lives difficultly alongside being a man of such values. Like you said, because after he, he left the Argentina job in 2004, he lived in a monastery with nuns for three months without a TV or phone. And it said that he studied football for three years after after he stood down from the Argentina job feeling guilty that they'd only won a gold medal at yeah. the Olympics. And that, that was his guilt that made him do that. But the one of the most outstanding moments, kind of in, in British football in the last decade, one of the most outstanding moments was the infamous occasion when he demanded that he allow Aston Villa to score an equaliser. And and this made fans furious. Uh, mm. It was it was a controversial decision. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so it was like towards the end of the season and Leeds had kind of effectively, like, were, were basically, were like, couldn't get promoted automatically anymore, but could still very much, it would depend on how, whether they won the like, remaining games, where they would come in the playoffs and all of that kind of thing. It was just very, there was an outside chance they could still get promoted automatically as well. And mm-hmm. um, one of his 
players Tyler Roberts kind of played on when the when there was clearly an Aston Villa player down injured and they played on and they basically scored Mateusz Klick scored a goal who's a who's a Portuguese um, Polish central midfielder mm-hmm. should never have happened and uh, the they gained a credible advantage by the Aston Villa players not being kind of ready to play all hell broke loose there was like fighting on the pitch whatever and he in the aftermath of it demanded that the Leeds players l- allow Aston Villa to score unopposed which was remarkable and even his players didn't want to do it the mm-hmm. defender Pontus Janssen who's a big Swedish centre-half and a bit of a prat actually um decided <laughs> they didn't really want to let this happen um and yeah and and so he's the person that does that I mean he's also the person that that sent someone to watch Derby train which was a basically yeah. ineffectual bit of spying that wasn't going to give him really much of an edge but he is again by any definition a lunatic so he um yes he kind of imposed this thing so he said in a way that he wanted to prove to himself he'd left kind of no stone unturned because he feels so guilty when they lose which is like (laughs) just mad mad stuff um uh, but he also he acknowledged that that was his decision and refused to let the club pay the fine he personally paid the two hundred thousand pound fa fine he he is this man of extraordinary uh moral certainty i guess uh yes or he lives absolutely by his code and and to kind of say he's meticulous in detail almost does him a disservice because he is totally obsessed do you think it's healthy is it it's not it's there's a short sure answer that it's not he's a 60 year old man bless him he should be home with a glass of malbec and um <laughs> Not during lockdown, there was a rumor or some kind of substantiated claim that he watched 20 hours of footage of a Leeds central midfielder called Alfie McCalmont, who plays for the under 23s, which oh is like a bit of a pressure to put on poor Alfie as well. He's probably just finished his A levels, bless him. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, that would be my fear from a dinner party perspective. Maybe we wouldn't get onto the kind of great moral conundrums of our time and maybe he just want to talk about football because i suspect that he is so obsessed that he doesn't know what else to talk about but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a risk i'm willing to take basically he uh, what do you think it would be like to be managed by him i mean you you've had managers albeit you know not in as a professional footballer to the best of my knowledge and no. <laughs> what never do you it. think as a personality he would be like to have as your boss i think He's one of those people that, from what I understand, again, just from what I've read, he's a mm. bit like detached, and you almost want to, you almost want him to to make you make him love you. Do you know what I mean? He doesn't give his affection yeah. very freely, and therefore they all like run through brick walls for him. So, I think I'm quite susceptible to that. Actually, I think I'm I'm someone who, who uh, yeah, as someone that stands in front of strangers and begs them for approval, I think I would be. <laughs> um, I think I would be susceptible to that style of management, actually. Um, yeah. So, yeah, imagine, I, I mean, there is, when he, when he became the manager, there was like a part of it, there was only two ways it ever was going to go. He was going to leave within two weeks or he was going to be the best Leeds manager ever. And and that really relied on whether the players kind of rose to this challenge of being like, yeah, we, we love him and we're going to go through brick walls for him. Or they were like, this bloke's weighing me every two days. What is he on? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, he, but I think I'd be up for it. I mean, I, as I said before, didn't know much about him today. My jaw has just lifted off the floor in time to yeah. talk to you. 
I I could talk to you about Belsa all day. There's really only time for one more thing, and I, and I can't leave this unsaid. Can you explain to listeners why he got the nickname El Loco? Do you know this story? I might not know this one. Is it the one about Maurizio Pochettino's legs? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great story. Tell us that yeah. one very quickly. <laughs> well, this is the fucking amazing. Um, and Maurizio Pochettino <laughs> tells it in a very nonplussed way, as though it's completely normal, which makes me even more... Um, it's basically Maurizio Pochettino, the Argentina, former Argentina defender and Tottenham manager, was a really good footballer. They wanted to sign him for the team where Marcelo Bielsa was working. Marcelo Bielsa drove to his house, which was in the stick somewhere, got there inexplicably at two in the morning, God knows why, and um, <laughs> said to his mum, you've got to wake him up because we want to see if he's going to be a footballer. She did it, which is always, I've always found questionable. She said, yeah, come in, strange old man. And <laughs> yeah. um, he went in to his bedroom, woke him up, took one look at his legs and said, yeah, he's got the legs of a footballer and drove back. <laughs> And he was right. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is loco. That is but mad, the story that I read today, which is apparently the reason why he got the nickname El Loco, was that when he was manager of Newell's in Argentina, uh, 20 incensed like ultra fans were furious and came to his house to protest whatever decision he'd made. Bielsa walks out of his house holding a grenade <laughs> and tells them to fuck off and get off his property. I believe and it, he... Connor. I'll level with you. I believe <laughs> it. I mean, this is a next level man. Yeah. And so, yeah, quite rightly, he got the nickname El Loco because he threatened fans on his property with a grenade, as you well, do. There's a famous American sports writer called Bill Simmons, and he's got this thing which he calls the Tyson Zone, which is basically for different less palatable reasons if anyone told you anything about mike tyson you would believe it and so he says that there are sporting personalities that enter the tyson zone where you would believe anything and i would accept that he had a grenade a rocket launcher he was on a tank (laughs) i I would believe any of it i think he's firmly in that league of of lunatics but in a much more crucially lovable way than mike tyson i think that is so true. That is, I will be thinking about the Tyson zone immediately <laughs> as well. Roy Keane came into my head. There yes. as well. He's another one he in the Tyson zone. Definitely in there. Ah, uh, I could talk to you about Bielsa all night, but we, we've got to move on. Your third guest might not be as intense as Marcelo Bielsa, but he does play intense characters very well. Yeah. You're inviting the fantastic actor Patterson Joseph to your dinner party. For those who might not know who Patterson Joseph is, remind us who he is. Well, I know him, and this is the reason I've invited him. I know him as as Johnson from Peep Show, and I know <laughs> yeah. that. And and in in one of those classic British, this is a classic British TV thing where you go someone who's a kind of not quite a lead part in a sitcom or something relatively lowbrow. You go, oh, what's he? What does he do? And then you look him up, and they're like one of the most accomplished Shakespearean actors of their generation. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> like that. Um, that's like every British actor ever. He's like, oh, is he like the third orc in Game of Thrones or whatever? And it's like, yeah, and he was. He played King Lear last year at the at the Donmar as well. So. Um, <laughs> Patterson Joseph, he has got a much more accomplished career than I would give him credit for, I think. But that's how I most, that's how I, what I, how I associate. Yeah. With it. Also why well, I he, 
I mean, he he loves uh, that people associate him with that. I I watched a thing earlier where he was asked, uh, "Does it annoy you that you know people approach you and just call you Johnson?" And he's like, "Why would that bother me? Like, <laughs> people love this character, and yeah. I love this character, and I'm just delighted that people kind of engaged with him." Well, I've got a very narrow reason for inviting him, basically, which is that about once a year, I just watch all of Peep Show from kind oh of start- yeah. And it's and it's so it's always so good, and <laughs> basically, I've got I just want to have a chat with him where he's and it's kind of a professional interest in as much as he's clearly brought something to that character that they did not know was there when they started writing it. Do you know what I mean? Like he yes. he has formed some kind of alchemy to those words that take Johnson from a very limited, boring kind of boss pastiche to this very, yeah, very yeah. strange, funny, like hilariously, hilariously funny uh, character. And I would just love to know um, how he, how he does it basically, because it is, it is like, it's like a magic trick. It's like watching a magic trick. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, he's just so, so funny, you know, in, and so memorable. such a brilliant point. That is such an excellent point. And you're absolutely right. There's no way, However good the writing is on Peep Show, you're absolutely right that he brought something unwritten and that couldn't have been imagined to the character. That's so true. Would you want Patterson Joseph to to be there, or would you actually really want Johnson at your dinner party? <laughs> <That's true. laughs> maybe you've got to the, you've got to the yeah the real nub of it there. <laughs> well, maybe uh, I, there's no way he's going through the evening without kind of reprising some kind of that's bollocks mark or something like that no, <laughs> i'm gonna do that especially if, if i've if i've been kind of yeah on the wine while i've been trying to cook and then i'm a bit loose then i there's no way he's getting away without that um or going liam kendrick in the house which is another really funny one um so yeah i maybe watched I'll, the clip well, earlier of when he uh he real life indecent proposaled jazz yeah uh, <laughs> And he wanted to offer him, what is it, like £532 to sleep yeah. with his girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it, it, I think what I really love is as the series goes on, in the, I think he's in, I think he's in every series. Um, and he is, like I say, a more traditional character in the beginning. And you just basically see him having more and more fun with it. And that's kind of a function of watching them all back to back as well and watching them rather than yeah, kind of a crop yeah. kind of spread out of. And by the end, he's, so weird he does these weird little <laughs> vocal tics and things like that um where yeah like in the kind of penultimate series they're at the uh the new year's eve episode and they're at his house and um he offers mark a drink and he says um what about a long cold neck bottle of bud hubba and it is the strangest <laughs> thing ever and like i really like peep show but i'm not like a proper peep show head but i'm i'm wholly in for, for alan johnson because every time he's on the screen <laughs> it's just like this something really funny is and, and increasingly very strange um <laughs> yeah. it's just like i don't oh, know i don't want to a kind of quote quote a thon but i could, I could <laughs> you just want a live performance by Patrick yeah, Joseph, exactly. kind of Johnson's best bits. It's, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier, he is also like a supremely talented Shakespearean actor yeah. and does a lot of stuff that isn't 
uh, comedy as well. He does a lot of drama too. Um, he also said last year that he started writing his first novel. Oh, so it kind of goes back yeah. to like what I was asking you earlier, that this thing I'm obsessed with asking creative people about all their kind of the multifarious nature of their creativity and all the different things that they Don't want you think to that's do. And, scary aspect of creative, like, because you look at him and you go, someone that talented, scary, scary talented. And like, yeah. they've, they, he's, he's, he's had a, an incredible career. He's had an amazing career, but he's not, to me, he should be in major Hollywood films. Do you know what I mean? Like leading. Yeah. Man in, and maybe there's, unfortunately, I guess some kind of, uh, some biases and some privileges in the industry that he doesn't have access to. I don't know, but, but like, I, I just, that, that, that's kind of terrifies me about creativity and about all of the, the ways in which it's kind of gate kept by commercial interest in a way, because every so often a, 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 like a newcomer will pop up in something and they've never been in anything before. And that's yeah. always like, wow, they finally got their chance. And the scary thing to me is like, what if they didn't? Do you know what I mean? They're like they're so good, and they've just been yeah. they've been on Holby City for the last five years or whatever, and yeah, terrifying. But oh, That's I'll definitely so read true. that novel. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, what would you be interested in hearing about all the the different projects that he'd worked on? Because he, he strikes me as someone who'd be very interesting to talk to. Or would I'd you be... really just want to grill him on Peep Show? Because he seems to love talking about that. Well, I'd be more, I think I'd be more interested, not in the project so much, or even Peep Show so much, but in his process, right? Because mm-hmm. there are certain people, and I think he's the perfect, like, kind of Premier League example of this, that turn everything they touch into, like, hilarity, basically, or, or like, they just so perfectly understand their performance and their persona and are so comfortable and they make these incredibly insightful and interesting choices in everything that they do. And so I'd be interested in how he does that. I, I, I suspect there'll be some kind of horribly scary answer, which is like, I don't know, basically, it's just kind of in me. But like people like <laughs> him, people like Tim Key is, is very like that as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the American actor John Early, I don't know if you know him. He's, oh, I he's don't like, know. Um, Kate Ballant, who is his kind of comedy partner. Uh, Tracy Tracy Morgan in um in, in yeah. Thirty Rock is just 30 like Rock, yeah. it's just like John John Cairns as well I think as a stand up comedian is, is very like that as well it's just something in them they just make the perfect choice and they can turn a nondescript word or not something that's a punchline just into something hilarious with a with a with a raise of the eyebrow or, or whatever and um so I'd like to talk to him more about like how do you do that uh, more than anything um, yeah yeah like and as you him. say it it probably is that thing where it's just like for some people it's a cliche I know, but some people do just have funny bones. Like some people just get what's funny and can instinctively without thinking, just embody something so funny without even knowing why they've done that. It's just the automatic choice and it's solid gold. And, And I think you're absolutely onto something with him there. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, he was he was a chef apparently before becoming an actor. Yeah, so I've invited two. Oh, I guess I'm, I'm well, I'm which brings us very nicely onto you have just said you've invited two chefs, Patterson Joseph, actor and chef. Your next guest, brilliant choice. Her knowledge of and appreciation for food is infectious. You're inviting Samin Nosrat. 
Yeah. I think infection is a really good word, actually. I, that's, I wouldn't have thought to think, think of that word, but it's a really good word. Um, yeah, like, for those, I guess for people that don't know her, she wrote a book called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, um, mm. and which was a really big-selling cookbook. But I first, I don't know about you, but I first became aware of her because of the Netflix yep. program of the same yeah, name. Yeah, exactly. And actually, similar to, to Patterson Joseph in a way, actually, where... I like my food and I'm a, I can cook a little bit, but not really like a, it's, I'm fine. Um, but I like watching cookery shows uh, uh-huh. and especially the big glossy Netflix ones where they're like, we're in Tokyo now we're in Lisbon. Like those ones. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's, yeah, that would probably be my ideal creative bucket list. Actually, if anyone knew anything about fucking olive oil or whatever, um, <laughs> like I, I, my girlfriend and I were talking about like, can you imagine when they got her in the room for the screen test or whatever, mm-hmm. after like, she'd written this incredible book, she's a great writer. We know that much. I don't think she'd really done that much on telly before, or maybe some YouTube stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine when they got her in the screen test and were like, all right, um, pretend you're talking to this woman about, about making olive oil or whatever. And she is the most uh, infectious, yeah. joyful engrossing television personality i think i might maybe have ever seen i don't know is that hyperbolic uh, no, i know I, I really think you're onto something i actually uh i only got around to watching the first episode of it last night it's been on right. my list for so long yeah, yeah. and then when you uh obviously said you were inviting her i wanted to watch an episode see what she was about but i really liked the look of the series and i realized that i must have watched that trailer for it like 10 times <laughs> over the yeah, last yeah. few years when I've been looking for a new series to watch and I only realized last night when I was watching the trailer like I laughed out loud watching a trailer for a cookery show and it was just like a release of joy yeah yeah I laughed out loud at a point when it's the point in the trailer you'll have seen it in the series when she's eating something and she says it's the spiciest thing she's ever eaten and she's laughing yeah and I laughed. I know. And it's mad, she it? just exudes this, like a warmth that I, oh my God, I would give anything to have. Like she you've is so immediately likable. I think um, you've got a bit of that. I've always said that about your MCing style, the warmth in it and your your openness and camaraderie. You've got oh. a bit of that in it. You don't eat as much olives on stage. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I will take both of those things as compliments. I do uh, honestly think there's a bit of overlap there. Oh, mate, you're far, far too generous there. It's like there you was... say, she starts laughing and it makes you laugh and feel happy. Yeah. One, I, think, I think I'm talking about olive oil a lot more than I had intended, but she's tasting <laughs> olive oil and uh-huh. she tastes olive oil and her eyes just like pop. They just like go really yeah, wide. And yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. It's It's, it, in a way, it's like, Oh, it's really simple. Get someone who's not a dickhead and is really <laughs> lovely and knows loads about what they're talking about and just turn the cameras on. It's not hard, yeah, really, is it? A hundred percent. But I mean, she is, as you said, like she's a unique kind of talent. There, uh, I read uh, an article earlier, a bit of an article earlier from Rolling Stone. And for me, like this, this opening to this article just is so perfect. It says... Every time Samin Nasrat laughs, it's like someone's opened a bottle of champagne. It pops in a bright round burst and then leaves a delightful fizz in the air. The lingering feeling of everyone with an earshot smiling. Like, that is that is perfect. That describes yeah, 
her her personality combined with her knowledge and her passion is just the perfect vehicle for for a show that's also shot so beautifully. Every frame of that show yeah, is a, a piece of art. And to be fair as well, we talked about a lot about her being on the telly, but the book, I got I bought the book after the fact and, the, and oh, again, yeah. I'm not really a cook, don't really know what I'm kind of doing, but the book yeah. in and of itself is, is brilliantly written as well. And I think it's just one of those kind of communicators. It's a fascinating, like, um, like it's a fascinating idea, the, the premise yeah. of the book and the subsequent series, yeah, that sure. uh, all good food is essentially made up of these four components, salt, acid, or sorry, salt, fat, acid, and heat. Yeah. Um it's it's an extraordinary theory. It sounds simple. Um but what a thing to explore. I mean, having read the book and that kind of thing, is there a specific aspect of her work that you would want to dig deeper into or a kind of area of discussion that you would like to explore with her? I would like some feedback on the food, I think. And and again, she would be I think she'd be very nice about the food without Yeah. You know, exacting but if you had ramsey round or whatever it wouldn't be very nice but i think she'd be nice. um i think the thing she's kind of increasingly famous for is just like however much salt you think you need to season something with like double it and then it's probably about that um and yes. so i think i would i would like to ask her a, a bit about that because there have been some times recently where i've thought i'm following what salmon told me to do here and i've made food <laughs> completely <laughs> I think I'm not quite getting it right, but um, yeah. So I, I would like to ask her about the kind of salt, the seasoning and salting, because I'm. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not quite gelling for me. Yeah, it's. <laughs> but <laughs> Actually, it is. Just it's vibes. She's just great vibes as well. Just whoa, she really just, is. I mean, obviously, like comedy and food are very different areas to operate in. But I guess uh, her as a presenter is a, a type of performance. Yeah. Is there anything that you think you could learn from her as a performer that oh, you would like to apply to your comedy? Yeah, I mean, she's completely herself. She's completely kind of vulnerable and lacking in self-awareness, um, which is, which is, I think, the key to it. I mean... I've done very few things. Me and my mate started making like a filmed series, like two, two minute videos about football on YouTube recently. Mm -hmm. And that by definition, the people who are good at doing things like that make it look easy. And it's not easy to be completely natural when someone turns a camera on and points at you. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird thing to do. Um, and she's just somehow, I don't know how, I think there's probably something about, she doesn't seem like an anxious person she seems happy and i think that, that yeah. helps. um and she seems at peace with herself and with who she is in a very open way where um yeah she doesn't seem self-conscious at all and it comes across as like you say it expresses itself as joy and and openness and happiness and so i think i would like to understand again how she does that i suspect as with patterson she will go well, I just, I'm just me. I'm just supremely talented. Why don't you try yeah. it? Um, uh, but God, yeah, I'd that's such a, like a light bulb moment when you said that, that makes so much sense that what it is, is exactly that she seems so comfortable yeah. with who she is. Sure. And, and that's it. That's what, that's what being at ease with yourself looks like. Definitely. And she's so lacking in any judgment as well of yeah. anyone around her, which is something I 
try to work on where I basically judge everyone within the first 10 seconds. <laughs> And, and what do you know? They always come out less favourably than good old moral me. Um, <laughs> but, but she, I don't, know, I don't really know that. Like she meets all these people throughout the series, some of whom she's clearly met for like the first time, some of whom maybe she knows a bit. With all of them, she seems to have this incredible understanding and very is very um, warm towards them and clearly has no judgment yeah. or perception of them whatsoever. She speaks to everyone like they're an old friend. Yeah. And that's a beautiful quality. Yeah, whereas I tend to speak to everyone like they're an enemy I haven't made yet. <laughs> <laughs> I would be more like her. That is, uh, I mean, she's such a terrific guest. She also, uh, she studied English at uni, so there's another little thing yeah, in common you guys have. To, and stuff like that as well, from what I read in this book. Um yeah, I, I, yeah. So, that, so I think there'd be a lot of overlap. I'm not sure how she'd get on with Marcelo, but I think she'd be yeah. quite. Up. <laughs> um, but I think but, even seeing the way she speaks with everyone, true, I would trust that she would be warm enough and engaging enough that even Marcelo might forget about football for fifteen for minutes. Second, yeah. Talk about how to season some steaks or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. probably right. She can win around anyone. I'm sold. She is, she's such a great guest. I'm such, I mean, just uh, what I love about doing this uh, podcast and having these conversations is every now and then I'll read about someone or I'll talk to someone like you about a guest of their choice. And they immediately go from being someone I've known nothing about to someone who I have a burning need to have at my own dream dinner party. <laughs> yeah. And I think Sami Nasrat is absolutely. When are you going to do your one? You're gonna to have to like episode 100 or something. You have to get. Someone I think on. so. Yeah, I'll, I'll treat myself if I if I can do 100 episodes, then I'll uh, I'll get you to come back and oh, interview lovely. me. That that's yeah. the deal. That. <laughs> um, your final guest, Jake, is someone that I I kind of know almost nothing about actually, but it's a name that I know, and I the very very little that I do know about this person, I know that he's a bit of a legend. Um. He's a fascinating addition to such a varied and interesting group of people. You're inviting Joy Division frontman Ian Curtis. And I'm going to have to ask your forgiveness in advance, because as I said, like I I know almost nothing about him. So some of my questions, I think, are going to come across as like a little bit facile. Mm. But what am I missing out on by not having Ian Curtis in my cultural sphere? It's a good question. I think... Um, I was obsessed with the music of Joy Division, which is basically Ian Curtis, like the lyrics of Ian Curtis effectively when I was like 16, the kind of sixth form age when you, you know, you love things in the passionate way that only a sixth former can. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I thought the music was kind of like nothing that I'd ever heard before. I was a bit hesitant to put him in, really, because it is a bit of a six-former choice. But I, I feel I, I kind of got to the point where I was like, I wouldn't be being honest, or, or do you know what I mean? I'd be picking, yeah. someone, like, picking someone a bit more cool or a bit more, but because he is a relatively, I guess you might say, like basic choice in some way, especially for a gloomy twenty-nine-year-old man. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it the music. What you're missing out on, I think, the music is incredible and is is insane but i think more than that you're missing out on the kind of 
I think the in, the word legend that uses is an interesting one because he very sadly killed himself when he was very young and yeah. um, has effectively become this icon or this kind of myth. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and I think that was probably what spoke to me a lot as a late teenager as well, kind of early adulthood as well, was this 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 sense of him being this like folkloric figure when actually he was just a bloke from Macclesfield really. Um, yeah. And so I think that's kind of what you're missing out on is he's truly... He, he, they intentionally, the people around him, and also just by by virtue of the fact that he was so brilliant, um, made him into this kind of mythic figure after his death. And so you always feel a bit like you never really understand him. Um, yes. So I think that's kind of what you're you're missing out on on a bit, really. Yeah, I mean, as you said, he um, he very tragically committed suicide at the age of twenty three, and and I have to admit, like reading about his life today like genuinely made me feel really really sad um but i have no knowledge of his musical output is he someone that brings you joy yes the music does bring me joy because the music is so incredible what i always find amazing as well is you remind yourself if you listen to the music the idea that a 19 20 21 year old 22 year old wrote this music is laughable because he (laughs) yeah ideas and with things that I think someone double his age maybe wouldn't really have much understanding of and writes about them with incredible clarity um Mm -hmm. what I also think he kind of brings me joy in a bit as well because I think he was a lot more normal than he let on and I think he was aware of what it meant to be a rock star and what that mythic status went and I think very sadly I miss probably I mean I've read basically everything there is to read about them because I was I was a little nerd but um uh, <laughs> I think that might have played a role in him killing himself as well which I think is really sad yeah. um but uh, and it's really yeah and I think it is it is really sad and there's no there's no way around that but I that uh, the notion of someone um who was like this invested in his art and they had such a strong sense of himself I do think is is a joyful is a joyful thing and I think the idea even though he did kill himself, which is really sad because he had such a long life ahead of him. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that people still listen to the music, and I always think there's probably, you know, like you say, like you're never further than six feet away from a rat in London. I think yeah, you're, yeah. Never, <laughs> you're never further than like 10 feet away from like a 16 year old who's just discovered joy. <laughs> um, and, I like uh, that. Yeah. And that brings me joy as well that music or art can last that long. Yeah. Over the that's... course of years. That's really interesting. It's uh, it's funny you said that you've kind of read everything there is to read about them because, uh, well, I don't know what was the exact phrase you used because you were a, a nerd, was it? Yeah, a, a little weird nerd boy. <laughs> a little yeah. weird nerd boy. Well, when I was reading about Ian Curtis, uh, he apparently, well, to quote his Wikipedia article, sorry that I used Wikipedia <laughs> as a source, uh, but he was described as bookish and intelligent as a child, like writing poetry. He developed interests in philosophy, literature, and poetry. And I see a lot of overlap there with like the areas that, and some of the topics you like to talk about on stage. You you touch on philosophy and literature in a big way in your stand up. Is that an area that if you had him at your dinner party there, you would enjoy discussing with him? Do you think? I think so. I mean, he he definitely is like the kind of the original archetype for like the the kind of the 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 bloke or the from a relatively normal 
like uh, from a, from a community or a place where it's not really rated that highly to be into like poetry and music and and art or whatever, who very self consciously then is into all of that stuff. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Rather, yeah, yeah. And so I think that that was definitely part of the hero worship when I was growing up. Was like I, I kind of had that sense of myself or that view of myself, um, which is I think where thousands of other like especially young men and probably young women as well associate with him. So. I definitely would like to talk to him about that. I, I wonder if now he would be someone who's quite outdated in his understanding or view of art in that I think there was a really kind of rigid hierarchy in the same way that a lot of Joy Division fans have a very rigid hierarchy about what constitutes good art. I think he, mm-hmm. might, have, he, he, he might be behind the times on that. Like when I was a teenager, um, good music was denoted by the seriousness of the music and the seriousness of the music was denoted by how much the person singing it wanted to kill themselves. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, he yeah. clearly wanted to kill himself a great deal and therefore his music was the best music, which I now know is not true because some of Katy Perry's songs are bangers and she doesn't want to kill herself <laughs> as far as I'm aware. Um, but I think in a similar way, he probably had a view of art and literature and stuff where there were these kind of big strong men at the top of the totem pole who who mm. wrote about the big serious questions of life because he was obsessed with like ballard and he was obsessed um with with lots of writers like that beat poets and rimbard and like mm-hmm. dylan and stuff like that so and especially then with bowie and stuff like that as well and i think for the better art has there's not really as much of a distinction between kind of selling out now or or kind of commercial art being commercial art can still kind of be valid as well like that kind of movement in music called poptimism in the late 2000s that kind of posited rightly i think that like beyonce is just as valid as bob dylan right it's just as important yeah 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 and 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 so i I think he might be a bit behind the times he might might be a bit out of step there but i would still like to chat to him about it nonetheless i just worry that he might be a really gloomy bastard while salmon's (laughs) trying to talk about seasoning the chicken Well, that is, yeah, I mean, a lot of his musical output and his lyrics are, are kind of filled with some quite morose imagery. Yeah. Um, and that is when we talked about the risk earlier, yeah. of the night going off the rails, I think we were both probably thinking, I hope Ian Curtis yeah, isn't difficult to be around. Yeah, there were some, there were some regrettable uh, early in Joy Division's career allusions to fascistic imagery in their artwork and stuff. I hope he doesn't start talking about that and then name <laughs> no Ian be quiet um, so yeah but Is again there... I think from what I've read about him of people that knew him he was just like he just liked going to the pub and smoking loads of fags and then he would go home and write these kind of <laughs> insane lyrics about insane I mean that in a pejoratively good way about yeah, yeah. about death and existentialism um so <laughs> I on the normal pub Ian days I don't know is there anything about his creative output that has like directly inspired you or is it so far removed from the area or the the style in which you talk about things? Is it just a case of admiring him rather than being influenced by him? I think I've probably, yeah, I've probably gone the other way now where I, again, like they, they were, and I don't think it, I don't think any of the members of the band and the people that then went on to be in new order, I don't think they actually were, I think there was a big gap basically between the iconography and the kind of mystique that they had in, in their kind of public persona and the kind of probably quite normal idiotic men that they were, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and I think that like, I've probably gone the other way when I first started I probably wanted to have that kind of serious posture or pose if you know what I mean like in yep. public like yeah, in yeah. any in how I performed or, or 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 how I spoke if I ever did stuff like this which I do very rarely um and I think as I've gone on I've just realized that that's actually that's relatively again I think quite old-fashioned now do you know what I mean I think if you think about yeah. I think I think there's a good thing about mystique and I think there's a good thing about yeah not being completely open and and I think that that is a part of good art to a certain extent but I think you can you can you can maintain that without adopting this insanely like morose or 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 depressed posture as a mark of your own seriousness I think um it's fascinating to hear you talking about them and and yeah that makes a lot of sense I mean looking at your your guests now as a collective so you've got John LeCarrie, Marcelo Bielsa, Patterson yeah. Joseph, Sami Nosrat, and Ian Curtis. Yeah. The thing that I've come to love doing in this podcast is at the end, trying to figure out what's the kind of common thread that goes through the group. What is the thing that connects them all in your mind? Um, you mentioned earlier values when you were talking about LeCarrie. And it's something that very strongly came out with Bielsa. Yeah. And I think comes out with uh, with Sami Nosra a little bit as well. Um, but also like intensity is something that yeah. really struck me about this group of people. Like Bielsa, unbelievably intense. Ian Curtis, very intense. Sami Nosra, like intense, but on the opposite way. end yeah. of the spectrum. Patterson Joseph <laughs> yeah. plays intensity so well. But what for you do you think if if one exists is that kind of common thread? Whew, I don't know. I think there's a bit of it. I think the two things you, you the two things you mentioned are really are really um, insightful actually and really appropriate. Um, but I think one of the other thing is there's an element of like um, originality. I think to all of them. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. Of, of kind of being themselves and and kind of. Uh, being truly themselves and, and being very original um, uh, in a really strong way. So I think there might be a bit of that as well, because I, I feel that, like, yeah. I mean, I might be again, imposing this too much on, on her, but I feel like Sami Nosrat has basically been like, yeah, I've seen what everyone else has done as a TV chef and I'm not going to do any of it. And it's going to be way better how I do it. And I think <laughs> something yeah. kind of a bit magical about that as well. So, so yeah, I think maybe a bit of originality. They're kind of all, they're all quite singular, I think. Um, like I yeah, said about definitely. as well, he just he he doesn't give a solitary fuck as far as I'm aware. So uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe they've all got a bit of that in them to a certain extent. I love that. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely valid. Um, it's it's such a fascinating group of guests. Like one thing that struck me as well is as a comedian, Patterson Joseph uh, plays comedic characters very well, but you've not invited any comedians there, which I thought was interesting. No, I did. I, I did toy with the idea of inviting Ricky Gervais because I absolutely loved Ricky Gervais. It was basically Ian Curtis and Ricky Gervais when I was a kid, or was mm-hmm. it a kid, sixteen or whatever. Um, <laughs> and I was obsessed with The Office, uh, but I think he's a twat now. And, um, <laughs> so I'd yeah, be interested, I'd be interested to have a conversation right. with him about about that and about trying to understand why, as a kind of 
hundred millionaire, you can be so angry about transgender people. But um, I was, yeah. <laughs> so, so he was the one that kind of came closest to the list, but there wasn't really much joy in that. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So you thought you'd invite Ian Curtis instead. <laughs> <laughs> He <laughs> got me there actually, <laughs> but actually, I would be excited to talk to him, whereas I would kind of be bristling for a fight with Gervais. I think. Yeah, I know what you mean. I I 100% agree. And not not to be not to be that idiot as well, but like a lot of the comedians that I really love, I am now lucky enough to be like the middle spot when they're headlining us. So it's like, yeah, I think you've got five people living or dead. You may as well go free and Curtis rather than you can just go and see John Ken's down the Soho Theatre whenever you want. Well, you used to. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, uh, again, very soon we'll be able to do yeah, that. Yeah, fingers um, crossed. That is, uh, that's such a good rationale and a great group of guests. So the only thing left to decide now, Jake, is what would you be cooking for these people? You've already said that you you kind of like cooking and that you, you enjoy yeah. it. Um, obviously, the pressure's on with having a chef there, but okay. I think you could, you know, put shit sprinkled with sugar on a plate and she'd find some positive in it she'd be like oh you you've put that on the plate so nicely the presentation yeah. is ace it's under seasoned the shit's under seasoned but other than that <laughs> great but what would be on the menu for this extraordinary group of people well this is i, I want i decided on something that i cooked a couple of times during lockdown partly inspired by i think this is cooked in one of the episodes of of the TV show we talked about, oh, I would great. cook like a slow cooked pork ragu. Oh, um, God, don't yeah. think there's any veggies in there. Maybe don't think Marcelo is. Um, so I think that would be all right. What there's kind of two things there. One is very delicious. It's really nice. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and, and it's like, you can't really get it wrong to a certain extent. Um, and two, because it's kind of slow cooked, you don't have to be like mincing around in the kitchen trying yes. to get stuff done. Um, which I always hate at, when I'm doing a dinner party or when I'm at someone else's dinner party. Um, so yeah, that could just be in the slow cooker, just like 10 hours. That's Brilliant. all gravy. Uh, and then I can kind of, oh uh, yeah, I can be lighting in cigarettes and asking him why he's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is, that's such a great dish when you consider as well, not only who you've got there, but where you are. Like if you're kind of, in the middle of the Scottish Highlands, yeah. I'm thinking a lovely, t- comforting yeah. ragu, some bottles of red wine on the table. Yeah, some cans That's of cans perfect. of telling three and get or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That's what I wanted. I wanted that kind of hearty, like let's all get in stuck into this ragu and let's talk about values. Come on, let's have it out. <laughs> um, oh, it sounds absolutely fantastic. It's uh, it's the kind of I think your selection of guests is the group of people that collectively I've known the least about. Oh, really? So, yeah, like, the, the, you know, there have always been a couple of people that some people have chosen that I've been like, oh, yeah, I've seen some of their work or I know some of their work. But actually with yeah. this group, there was very little that I knew about them. And so I was a little bit, um, well, I was very interested to hear why they meant something to you. and I, w- But I did feel that uh, a, a little bit detached from from the the collective of, of people that you gathered like when i've had people in the past choose people like jim henson uh, yeah. who i just adore right like i was i was already really excited and thinking god Lord, i would love yeah. to be at that party but i wasn't sure what this one was going to be like and we've got to the end of it and you have totally sold me on it i mean on your round 
It sounds like such a fascinating night. Uh, you can come you can come along. You can help me do the ragu. You can be on the pasta. <laughs> Even if I just have to sit in the kitchen while you guys are all eating in the dining room. Uh, I think I might fly need you in the to wall. damp down some of the arguments and stuff as well. Just step in with your, your warmth and generosity and be like, that's yeah. enough. Put down I'll the take the grenades off, Bielsa, <laughs> and just say, no, you can get it back when you're leaving, Marcelo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It might need two people too to hold him back. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jake, I I have loved this conversation. Thank you so so me much too. for sharing your dinner party with me. Um, for our lovely listeners who might want to hear more from you, see more from you, we mentioned the the Edinburgh Unlocked audiobook earlier. You can get that from Audible, or I'm sure you can get it from other places as well. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned your your series on football that you're doing with a couple of other really great comedians, Jack Harrison, Rajiv. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah so, you so tell us where YouTube. you can see that. That's on YouTube. Uh, just search for Two Footed on there. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I don't do anything on there. I just self promote like once every three months. So I'm not. I'm not the best uh, follow on there. <laughs> um, so yeah, you get me on there. I mean, I don't know what the next step is for anyone in comedy now. Or I mean, it felt like it was coming back, and then today there's more restrictions and stuff. So yeah, yeah, God a little knows, kind of God two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, exactly. But um, but yeah, hopefully I'll be out and about doing more gigs soon, uh, as and when my real life work, uh, which is more valuable both financially and morally, <laughs> um, kind of settles down a bit so um yeah get me on get me on there if you want and i'll probably hang on about gigs every now and again well we'll add links to all of those things to the episode description and from a very selfish point of view i hope gigs aren't able to go ahead over the next few months because i would love to see you back at jericho comedy it's always such a treat when we got you there no, Jericho, Jericho comedy has been massive for me over the years. It's definitely been a huge reason why I got any better than I did. And everyone's there has been so kind and willing to put me on at gigs when I probably didn't have much right to. So it's, um, yeah, I'd love <laughs> to go back all. soon. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. This has been really oh, fun. I've had a lovely time. This has been terrific. Thanks so much, Jake. And we'll hopefully speak again soon. All right. Take care, mate. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. I absolutely loved that. Jake Farrell's Dream Dinner Party, a really fascinating group of guests. And Jake is such an interesting and intelligent guy. I just absolutely love chatting to him and hearing him talk about his areas of interest. We've added links to Jake's social media accounts and Jake's two-footed football blog series, vlog series, uh, to the episode description. I've also added the link to the Penguin Random House Edinburgh Fringe Unlocked audiobook, which you can get on Audible. Jake's section so fantastic, and there are some really amazing contributions from comedians like Ivo Graham, Jordan Brooks, Chloe Petz, and sketch duo Anna and Helen, to name but a few. It's so good. Check it out. I, I just love having these conversations so much, and I really hope you're enjoying them too. It would help us out a huge amount if you would like, rate, share, subscribe, all that stuff. I mean, not to get too deeply philosophical here, but... If a podcast gets made and has no listeners, does it even make a sound? The Dinner Party is a Jericho comedy production. If you want to hear any more from me, you can visit www.connormcreynolds.com and have a look and listen to some of my other radio, podcast, writing and comedy work. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest chatting all about their dream dinner party. But until then, thanks so much for listening and bye-bye. <laughs>